Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Um, may I introduce Captain Mike Bannister? Thank you. My mum said, if you get a round of applause at the beginning, stop, because it's only going to get worse. <laughs> so, Mike, um, big day, day after the launch of the book. Um, how are you feeling? Uh, excited, uh, delighted there are so many of you here. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, nervous, because this is something totally new. Um, but encouraged because of the things that have been said today and in the last few days and in the two years that have led up to this day. That the enthusiasm that is still there for, for Concord and for all of the people that made Concord special because we all know that Concord was a very clever aeroplane but what made Concord really special were the people. And it's really nice to meet some of the people that I knew from earlier days and, of course, to make new acquaintances. So it's been really great fun. Fabulous. And it's fantastic to be here. I mean, I've not fully appreciated how integral Brooklyn's was to the Concord story. Yeah, a, a, a third of every Concord ever built was built here at Brooklyn. So whether the airplane had Air France or British Airways on the side, it was actually built here. Now, a lot of people think the airplanes were built in Toulouse or Filton, but they weren't. They were built in various places around the countries and assembled in Toulouse and Filton. So, a third of each Concorde was built here. Uh, the clever third, as people would like to say. So, it's the, the front bit with the, the flight deck and the first five rows of seats, and the rear bit with a very clever tailplane and uh, tail cone. So, they were then shipped off either to Toulouse or to Filton to be, well, uh, to be assembled. Fast forward to now, and Brooklyn's Museum has the largest Concorde collection in the world. Uh, we have Delta Golf, uh, our aircraft. We also have the simulator that I and all my colleagues learned to fly on and were regularly checked and trained on. Uh, and we have the largest spares holding, so we do support the other museums. Uh, and we have lots and lots and lots of people who come along and see Concorde even to this day. So it's great. Really love it. So tell us a little bit about the book. Briefly, how... Give us a sort of quick synopsis of the book, and then tell us how it begins. A quick synopsis of the book. It's about Concord. <laughs> <laughs> and it begins on page one. Um, it's funny, I, I kind of guess that that might be a question. I've been thinking about quite why I wanted to do this. And I've come to the conclusion it is about the people. It's about... The fact that 50,000 people in the UK are involved in the, the, the building and the designing the manufacture of the airplane. Two and a half million people flew on British Airways Concorde. They were all, at any given time, there were about 250 people inside BA, pilots, flight engineers, ground engineers, cabin crew, baggage agents, sales agents, tickets clerks, loading staff. Any given time, about 250 people in a core Concord family, we called it, of the 40-odd thousand people that worked in BA. And then there were the public, you know, the public that they, you and I, taxpayers in the UK, paid for the development of the airplane. So we all feel this sense of ownership. And it was really special, you know, even at the, the very latter stages where Concord had been flying for 27 years, people would still stop and look up, especially in this area, around Weybridge, Walton, Woking, but Concorde would fly over sometimes eight times a day. People would still stop and look up. 
And it was the people, and it, so it was thinking about the people and all that everybody's made, the contributions they've all made to the aeroplane. That's part of it. Um, I was so lucky to be involved with it for uh, 22 years of my life, and it was a really big and most important part of my career, so I kind of wanted to capture that. Um, I wanted to pay tribute to the airplane itself uh, and tell some of the inside stories from the flight deck about the aircraft. I'm mindful of the, the accident um, where we lost um, so many people, but also I, that, I still feel that story hasn't been properly told, that there's a lot in that story that either has never come out or has come out, but you need to know where to look. And there was some injustices in the way that the, the, the investigation of the trial conducted that were eventually sorted out, but that took a lot of effort and time. And during that time, I lost a dear friend, Henri Perrier, who died, who was one of the accused. So there's something about putting that right. There's something about making sure that the record is set straight um, and that some of the aspects of the accident that haven't really been had a light shine on, shone on them do now. Um, and fun, you know, it was great fun. I really, really, really enjoyed it, and I hope that some of that fun comes through. And what struck me was the sort of the narrative of it. You know, it, it's got a beginning and a middle and an end. Was that deliberate? Yeah, I, I mean, because it is a story. It's a story that um, a lot of people are familiar with. There's a huge number of people in the UK and in France and indeed around the world, especially in, the, in America, uh, because of more than 50% of our customers were uh, US origin. So uh, a lot of people in the States have a, a real love and affinity for Concorde. And it was about telling the story and retelling the narrative that people could hopefully relate to. So it was deliberately chronologically ordered, but going off in, in slight tangentials occasionally to try and draw things together. And I think that it flows well, and those that have read it in advance have been very supportive and certainly does. So yeah, we shall see. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning then, and tell us how you first got the flying bug. These are these are pictures of me as a kid. I know I haven't changed much, <laughs> uh, but I'm not much taller. But no, these are these are these are pictures of me as a kid. And um, in between the two at the top and the one in the middle, the one in the middle is when I went to grammar school when I was 11, and the two above are much younger. In between those, at the age of seven. Um, my brother and I were always taken by our parents every year down to the south coast, to Bournemouth, Southbourne actually, right next to Bournemouth, for our holidays. Um, we didn't have a car, um, and we weren't that wealthy, so we'd go and stay with friends in Southbourne every year. Loved it, absolutely loved it. And we used to walk through the gardens to a place called Fisherman's Walk, uh, and then down the cliff railway, and I'd be sitting on the beach, and it was great, really loved it to this day. The downside, was not having a car, it took five and a half hours to get from South Bedfordshire down to the South Coast. Uh, and I hate coach journeys, because I was in a coach, no car, in a coach. Hate coach journeys, and I remember quite clearly to this day, sitting on the beach, probably just built a sandcastle, and looking up, and there was this aeroplane flying over, and going to France or the Channel Islands or somewhere, and I can remember the precociousness of a seven-year-old working out that that trip that had taken me five and a half hours in a coach would have only taken 20 minutes in this little airplane. So that was it, I was sold. So I went and told mum and dad I wanted to be a pilot, and they said yes dear. Um, <laughs> but I stuck at it and uh, went through school and then went to pilot training college at Hamble. Uh, and to me, there was no other alternative, be a pilot. 
So obviously we're going to sort of fast forward a bit here, but um, the story then really goes ahead to your joining BOAC, um, and that was after a stint at Hamble. Just describe a little bit about the, the Hamble training process before we go on to your joining BOAC. BOAC. I was really, really lucky. Um, in 1960, uh, I'll go back a little further. Um, the airlines, BOAC and BEA, were, from a pilot's perspective, mainly staffed by ex-World uh, War II Air Force, Air Force pilots who'd retired out of the Air Force and had joined the airlines. By about 1960, that flow was coming to an end, and it was clear that they needed a new source of pilots for the years going forward. And so BOAC and BEA, the forerunners of British Airways, together with the UK government, in the form those days of the Ministry of Aviation, decided they'd establish a pilot training school at Hamble near Southampton. And it would be a university of the air. Uh, it would be living on a campus. It would be completely residential. You would join it, and you would do your technical course, your flying course, and two years later, you would graduate with a, a pilot's, commercial pilot's license and a, a guaranteed job in either BOAC or BEA. You could state a preference, which may or may not be met, but you definitely have a job. And you were sponsored, so you didn't have to, mum and dad didn't have to find the vast amounts of money that it takes to train a pilot these days. Um, it was treated like a university, so you could, parents could apply for grants or accommodation grants, and so I was very, very lucky that all those things fell into place and I, I was able to go. Um, and this, this desire to be a pilot was really running through me, so I'd applied to really anybody that would take me. So the Air Force, I'd applied to the Air Force and I'd applied to Hamble. And the Air Force had said, um, yeah, Mike, we, we would really like you to join us. And um, so I'd said, yeah, I'd love to come. And they said, right, uh, report to RAF Cramble on September the 17th in 1967, and uh, you know, you'll join officer training. Great, get to be a pilot, right? Sadly, my father was taken very ill about two weeks before I was due to go. Um, he had a viral con uh, condition. They never really did find out what the virus was. And he ended up at St. George's Hospital in London and uh, went into intensive care. And in the intensive care unit, there were only three beds. Uh, he was in there for three weeks. And in that time, 21 patients went in and only one came out my father. And that kind of changes your perspective on life a bit. So you decide you must grab every opportunity. So in November of that year, phone rang again, and it was Hamble saying, Mike, there's a, somebody's just dropped off a course starting this Friday. Do you want the place? I thought, I'd better think about this. So I said, I'd like to think about it. You've got 30 minutes. <laughs> um, so three minutes later, I rang them back and said yes. Uh, and so I went to Hamble rather than the Air Force, and uh, I'd have been happy flying anything. I don't particularly want to kill people, so maybe the, the airlines was a better thing. Um, but I, you know, I was fortunate. I got in, into pilot training at Hamble and flew some lovely airplanes, the Chipmunk and the Cherokee and the Baron. And then, fortunately, um, fate turned another way. Just as our course was about to graduate, um, the airlines decided they didn't want any pilots after all. Uh, they would honour their commitment to give us a job, but we'd go off and be navigators. Uh, so that the uh, principal had been given the dis distinctly uh, unpleasant task of whittling down the course of 45 to as little a number as he possibly could. 
So we went from 45 to 30 at final exams. And he gave us a real motivational speech. I'll never forget this. In your, in your final exams, none of which are multi-choice, there are 21 papers covering a whole raft of subjects. And he stood up and said, right, gentlemen, because we were all gentlemen, no ladies there, um, you're about to take your final exams. Um, I just want to tell you that neither of the airline wants you. Motivational. You're not going to be pilots. Motivational. Um, there are 21 papers. Motivational. One of which has a 100% pass mark. Motivational. Anybody that fails more than three papers is out. And anybody that fails any paper on a retake is out. Not surprising, we went from 45 to 30 pretty quickly. Um, but those 30 stuck at it, and we graduated. And because neither of the airlines wanted us, they said, well, you know, we always ask you to state a preference, but um, we don't guarantee you'll get that preference. But as we don't want you, you might as well go to the airline that you say the preference for. So every one of us got the airline that we wanted to. So of the 30, 18 went to BOAC and 12 went to BEA. So that was a good thing. Um, so I rock up to be the 707 navigator. And I think in been going for about two weeks, I was in a classroom about a third of the size of this room, and we're all in there learning how to work a sextant and how to lay off drift. And this very imposing captain comes in with a you know, marvellous uniform and a great demeanour. He turned out to be the flight manager for the VC-10 fleet. And he hands out a piece of paper to everybody. And on this piece of paper, there were five lines and five tick boxes. And it said, I very much want to be a 707 pilot. I want to be a 707 pilot. I don't mind whether I'm a 707 or a VC-10 pilot. I want to be a VC-10 pilot. I very much want to be a VC-10 pilot. Please check one of the above and hand it in. Well, of the 18 of us, um, 12 thought, this is some sort of trick. Uh, we're on a 707 navigator's course, so I'd better say, I want to be a 707 pilot. Six of us, me included, and I got it from watching my father suffer and knowing you've got to grasp everything as it came. I thought, I want to be a VC-10 pilot, so I'm going to tick. I very much want to be a VC-10 pilot, so I tick the box. Handed the papers in, he collected them in. I and five others had ticked that box. He said, right, you six, come with me. Um, and we went off and started a VC-10 pilot's course that afternoon. Uh, the other 12 remained on a 707 navigator's course for the next two and a half years. <laughs> the moral of the story being, when life offers you an opportunity, grab it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you, you did a lot of your um, initial training on simulators when you joined BOAC, but one of the things that I found very vivid in your early descriptions of, of, of your early stint at BOAC was your um, was learning to fly the VC-10 for real. Um, you had some real characters who were your tutors back then. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your training in Ireland and who you encountered as your instructors over You're getting me to tell all the good stories in the book. They won't want to buy anybody here all the good stories. Give a soup song. Oh, okay then. Um, Nick's absolutely right, because the trainers that taught me and my colleagues to fly the VC-10 were the last group of Air Force retirees who had flown in the Second World War, uh, quite often flying bombers, Lancasters, Halifaxes, Wellingtons, the Wellingtons which was built here. Um, and they had huge amount of experience. 
um, but were very different characters. Uh, there were a much broader spectrum of characters in the airline at that time than there are these days. Um, there were the, the, the soft, touchy-feely ones, and there were the ones you really didn't want to cross. You know, the, the one that insisted you call them sir all the time. I can remember flying with one of these chaps. Uh, and, you know, I can't possibly say that his name was Gillette. <laughs> uh, but he was renowned, this guy, as being a real stickler. Uh, and I'd never flown with him. I thought, oh no, I've heard about this guy. You've really got to be very careful. So I thought, yeah, better start off on the right foot. Um, I'll get my hair cut. So um, got my hair cut and rocked up in the first sector to fly out to Tehran, stayed overnight in Tehran. Following morning, the first officer, because he's the senior first officer, the number two, I was just a single one ringer, came over to you and said, Mike, he said, I've got a message from the captain. I thought, oh, this is good. Perhaps I'm going to get some, do some flying. He said, get your hair cut. <laughs> I've just had it cut. Yeah, it's not short enough. Get it cut. I'm in Tehran. You know how difficult it is to find a barber in Tehran? Anyway, that's funny about But th these characters were, were really inspirational, and they had great sense of fun. And the VC-10 is a very manoeuvrable, exciting airplane, um, but very loud. And um, it was something that, that the pilots that were experienced on it really used to enjoy making something special out of. And we flew out of Shannon and go out over the sea and do upper air work and all sorts of things, stalls and... and ghastly manoeuvre called Dutch Roll, and then we'd come back in and we'd do circuits and all that stuff. But one of the pilots, um, we'll call him Jeff, because that was his name, um, had a party trick, and there are some cliffs there, they're about 600 feet vertically high on the, on the, the seashore, called the Cliffs of Moa. And his party trick was to get down really low in a VC-10, I mean, big aeroplane, and get down really low, and I'm talking sort of 50 feet above the sea, um, at about 300 knots and pointed straight at the cliffs of Moa. Um, now, he's obviously done this many times, so he knows when to pull back. Um, us poor sprogs have never seen anything like it in our life. And I'm sitting in the right-hand seat next to him, and he's making me fly it until we got to about 100 feet when he thought it's probably better he did. Um, and just pointed straight at the cliff. Absolutely. And I thought, that's it. You know, this is it's all over. Until the very last moment, he pulled, pulled all the power pulled up, cleared the cliff by what felt like two or three feet, I'm sure it's far more, roared off, go and land at, um, back at Shannon. Well, he'd done this a number of times, and clearly, the guy that owned the pub just on the top of the cliff <laughs> was getting really hacked off at this. Um, and it was a pub we frequented. It wasn't like we weren't known, but clearly, well, it transpired that on this particular occasion, some windows were broken, and uh, so he, the, the, he made a formal complaint. So, of course, being a, a sturdy ex-RAF um, pilot, Jeff decided that really he, there was only one response to that. He'd go and do it again. Um, but this time, what he did, <coughs> next time he came and pointed straight at the cliffs and were pulled up, and then as we got just over the edge, he throttled the, pulled the throttles right back, stuck the nose down, turned left, went right over the top of this pub with no power on at all, and just as he cleared the puddle, he poured it all on, the whole lot. I think it was 127 tiles came off the roof. <laughs> and the following evening, we went to the pub, and we got free drinks, because the landlord said, we win, we didn't
Well, let's move on um, to Concord um, herself and um, just give us a little flavour of how it was that you actually got to fly Concord, to become a Concord pilot. There um, are clearly a number of prerequisites, tall, dark, handsome, um, and I didn't need any of those. Um, but if there were any that said enthusiasm, dedication, uh, and commitment, and certainly got all those, people become pilots uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, you like flying airplanes, you want to see the world, um, you're liking a regular lifestyle, you're liking a good social life that, that pays pretty good. Um, so all of those knit together to build an aspiration to become a pilot. Now, it depends what order you put them in, which airplane you want to fly. So if you want to see the world, then clearly Congo's not the airplane for you. You need to be on the 747 or the 777, 787 these days and flying intercontinental. If you want a really irregular lifestyle, you probably want to fly short haul, where you, you know, you'll be all sorts of odd times you have to get up and go and you fly sort of five or six days in succession. If you want to fly, if you really want to fly, then Cogwell's the airplane for you. Um, bizarrely, you would earn quite a lot less money flying Cogwell than you would fly some of the others. That's another story I won't get into, but that's just the way things were structured. So it, you, the aspiration to make lots of money wouldn't fly Cogwell if you really love flying. You would. And every time we had some vacancies on the fleet, um, we put a notice out, a bid notice, and saying, you know, there are five vacancies for captains, five vacancies for co-pilots. And we get 30 to 40, sometimes 50 applications for each one. And it was just purely a, a chance of seniority number and whether you were rated as being capable of coping with a very difficult conversion course. Because the course to convert a pilot and in terms of a captain, one somebody who'd been with BA, say, for 25 years, um, from their existing airplane onto Concorde, took six months. Whereas to go from their existing airplane onto any other airplane, like 747, was only two. So it was three times as long, it was six months, and of those six months, four months were residential in Bristol. So not only did you have to be committed to fly, determined to do a six-month course, you had to have support from your family and friends because you were going to go away for, effectively, for four months. So not everybody would bid for it. In fact, um, when I became the boss and, and we ran the um, Concord bids, it wouldn't be at all unusual for people to come in the office and say, Mike, I'm not bidding for Concord because I want to see the world, um, but I'd love to have a go. <laughs> and you know, we, they'd actually come down to Bristol and fly the simulator for us. So it was just good luck and good fortune. And yeah, I and all my colleagues always thought we were privileged and honored to have that opportunity to fly the best airplane in my mind, has ever been. Uh, and was it very different to fly from other aircraft? Um, yes, it was. Uh, you could, much more interesting, much more exciting. Um, you could fly the airplane with your fingertips from takeoff, climb, acceleration, through supersonic cruise, uh, deceleration, descent, and landing. You could do it all with your fingertips, and then. On a couple of occasions I did because the autopilot didn't work. Um, it was an absolute joy. It was rather like a, a, a thoroughbred racehorse rather than a riding school hack or, or a sports car rather than a truck. It was an absolute delight to fly. And of course it did extraordinary things. It flew at 23 miles a minute, a mile every two and three quarters seconds. You're at 60,000 feet where the sky got darker and you could see the curvature of the earth. You're traveling so quickly 
that the Earth is effectively going backwards because you're going faster than the Earth rotates. So you'd take off at London at 11 o'clock in the morning. You'd travel so quickly, you'd land in New York at 20 past nine, an hour and 40 minutes earlier in local time. Um, and it actually felt like it because, uh, firstly, the pressurization in the cabin was only an equivalent altitude of 5,000 feet as opposed to 8,000 feet on, say, a 747. And you're only in it for three hours and 20 minutes as opposed to, say, eight hours for a 747. So if you just think of it, you're, you're up a 5,000-foot hill for three hours and 20 minutes as opposed to being up an 8,000-foot mountain for eight hours. So you actually felt a lot better. And then all the medics realized that this business of traveling faster than the Earth rotates, the sun appears to go backwards in the sky and that kind of resets the body clock. So you'd arrive in New York at 20 past nine, and it would feel like 20 past nine. Uh, and you've got the whole, whole day ahead of you, and you could do all sorts of things. I did all my city living in, in New York, and then the next morning, get up and come back. And all of the benefits which were intended for the customers, of course, we got as well. So it was an absolute joy to fly. But I come back to the point I made earlier. It was the people, the, the people who flew on it, the people that serviced it, the, the cabin crew, uh, the customers, there were a lot of very close friendships struck up between crews and, and the customers who flew really regularly with us. So that, that side of it was great fun too. Now I'm sure you're going to say what happened on Concord stayed on Concord, but I'd like you to tell us a little bit, if you can, about some of the passengers that you flew and, you know, just famous ones, really. Yeah. Zip! If you promise not to tell anyone, um, we always, everybody thinks that, uh, not everybody, a lot of people think that Concorde was um, for celebrities, for the rich and famous. But in fact, 80% of our customers were business people, um, and 80% of those were repeat customers, so pe people who flew Concorde more than five times a year. Of the remaining 20%, 10% were the rich and famous, 5% uh, were sports, entertainment personalities, and 5% were people who did a trip of a lifetime. And that profile was the same throughout the entire history of the airplane, right up until the time when we announced the retirement, when it flipped. And it, it flipped then to 80% doing a trip of a lifetime, and only 10% business people. Not because the business people didn't want to travel, it's because they couldn't get a seat. Um, because you know, the, the, the chief exec would ask their PA to get them on the next day's Concorde, well, they want a seat left because people would book pages in advance because it was a trip of a lifetime. So we did meet celebrities and we did meet interesting people. Um, I particularly re recall meeting uh, Rudolf Noriev. I'm very interested in the ballet. And in the uh, mid-70s, about 1976, I guess, um, I just thought it'd be great fun. I was in London. Why don't we go along to the ballet? Uh, why I go to Covent Garden? So, yeah, it's a rock, rock along. So, rocked along to the box office, said, uh, got any tickets for tonight? And the lady said, actually, yeah, I have, I've got two. Oh, I'll have those. Go in, watch uh, the first half of the ballet Hamlet, and think, this male dancer's really good. You know, he's, he's he'll, get, he'll go far, this chap. So, in the bar at the interval, I'm saying this, and somebody overheard me say, did you say he's as good as Noriev? And I said, no, I think he probably is. That's because it is Noriev. <laughs> and I got chatting to this guy, and he, he bought his ticket over a year before. It just so happened I'd turned up at the box office immediately after somebody had come up with two returns. So, so that was great. Years later, fast forward, and Rudolf Noriev was on the airplane, so we invited him on the flight deck and uh, got chatting to him and said to him, you know, what, uh, 
what was your favourite ballet to dance? And he said, well, he said, my favourite ballet was Hamlet. And he said, and the action, I said, when was your best performance? He said, well, maybe not my best performance, the one I enjoyed most was at Covent Garden in 1970. I was there, I saw you! <laughs> Which you turned around and said, well, we're equal now, because I've watched you work. <laughs> and then there were the ones that we, we kind of didn't often talk about, but um, occasionally, um, the jet stream, which we now all know, everybody knows about the jet stream and how it affects our weather, probably part of the reason it's pouring with rain today. But in the early days of Concord, the, the, the phenomenon that is the jet stream was not very well known. And what it is is a, a core of very, very strong wind um, at about 50,000 to 55,000 feet that loops across the Atlantic, in fact it goes around the globe, it's all, all to do with the circulation of the Earth. But this core can get really high uh, velocities, 150, sometimes 200 miles an hour of wind. If you've ever seen um, uh, the movie where the, what's the name of the movie, where the turtles are in the current off the Earth, that's the one. Yeah, Finding Nemo, the current off the eastern Australian coast, and they get this current because it speeds them up. Same thing happens with the jet stream. So we eventually got to understand this better and were able to predict where it might be a little better. So we kind of sometimes had a knowledge in advance that there was going to be all this very strong tailwind. And this particular occasion, uh, when we got to briefing in New York, the briefing officers told about this, and we said, I tell you what, why don't we have a go for the fastest crossing? And all we've got to do is get up there, get into the jet stream, see if we can beat three hours, which we did, by the way. Um, so get on board, and just happened to be in my sector, so the captain said, right, Mike, he said, you can do all the PA. So it's exciting, got on the PA and said, ladies and gentlemen, of the usual spiel, but you might like to know that today the winds are very much in our favour and the conditions are such that we're going to attempt to beat the record for transatlantic crossings, which currently stands at two hours and 56 minutes. And uh, we're going to really go, you know, all out to do it. And so as the flight went on, you know, keeping them updated and trying to generate some excitement about this. Um, but unfortunately, towards the end, the, the jet stream moved away and we came out of it. And it was fairly clear we weren't going to be 2 hours 56. I think we did 2 hours 59 in the end. Um, but I got on the PA and said, well, ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's, um, I'm afraid I have to tell you that we probably won't beat the record. We're still very, very fast. We probably won't beat the record because we've just come out of the jet stream. We're still optimistic we'll beat a, a three-hour flight time. And about ten minutes later, the stewardess came out and said, Mike, and, um, Elizabeth Taylor has just pressed the call bell. And I went over to her and I said, yes, ma'am, can I help you? And she said to me, could you tell the captain that if we're not going to beat the record, could he slow down a bit, please, because I need 45 minutes to put my makeup on. <laughs> We told her we had, but we didn't. Uh, she was renowned for it, apparently, absolutely renowned for it. Uh, Mike, there must have been many, many sort of highs, high points from having flown Concorde, but I wondered if you'd just give us a uh, quick rundown on your top two or three. Gosh, top two or three. Well, I guess one of the top ones was um, finding out I was on the course in the first place. Um, the first ever takeoff. So the course, as I said, mentioned was six months long. The two months of that was learning and talking, chalk and talk about the technical side, how it actually worked. Two months flying the simulator, so learning initially how to actually fly it, but then how to operate it, and then how to handle the various selection of emergencies that you might arise. And then two months flying the airplane, 
um, on the route with passengers under the supervision of a training pilot. Um, and so you have to go from the simulator to flying the line. I mean, the Concorde simulators of a generation where um, it wasn't good enough to do what we now call zero flight time. So you couldn't go directly from the simulator to fly the line. You had to go and practice takeoffs and landings, doing circuits and bumps, um, which is a, a, a great time. You go off for maybe up to two weeks and do 36 circuits and bumps with this fabulous airplane, you know, each fabulous. Um, but obviously, before you do that, you've been on the simulator for two months, and you, you know how to fly the airplane, and you practice the procedures you're going to do doing the circuits and bumps uh, on the simulator. Now, the simulator, the very one that we've got here, uh, was very, very, very good. Of its time, it was the best in the world. Um, and it sat on a platform. Uh, and this platform had six axes of motion, so it could go left, right, up, down, twist and turn, up, seat, perch, like really good, and it could simulate g-forces. What the simulator would do on this platform would actually surge ahead, pushing you back in the seat to simulate g. But of course not for very long, because it's, it's a finite amount that the platform can move. Uh, fast forward my very first takeoff. So I'm, we've got the airplane started up, taxied out, sitting, and it was Jeff again, sitting on the end of the runway, and he said, right Mike, he said, um, what I want you to do he said, we'll do what we've briefed. You say three, two, one, now. Slam the throttles open, and we'll accelerate down the runway, get airborne, uh, climb ahead, and level off at 2,500 feet, if you can. <laughs> what do you mean if I can? You know, I'm in the right answer. What do you mean if I can? I'm a pilot. <laughs> well, of course, one of the things on Concord, you always choose the maximum power for takeoff, uh, or full power and reheat. The philosophy was it's best to get up and get going and leave the noise behind. But on this occasion, the airplane weighs only 115 tons as opposed to its maximum takeoff weight of 185 tons. So you're 70 tons lighter than the maximum weight, but you're using the maximum power. And we practice that in the simulator, but it's not like the real thing. So I'm thinking, this is great, Skywalker. I'll show him our level off at 2,500 feet. You just watch me. Um, Bang the throttles open, the next thing I'm at 4,000 feet. <laughs> and it's like a rocket, literally, in fact, we did subsequently call it the rocket. It's like I was pushed back in my seat, continuous, continuous acceleration. Everything happened so fast. The G forces were phenomenal. And you, you, you just, the brain couldn't keep up with it the first time, which is, I guess, why you go and do the training. And level off at 4,000 feet sort of come back to my senses and I turn and look at the captain, he's laughing his head off. Everybody did it. And eventually when I got to become a trainer captain, I reaped revenge on my trainees by making them do the same thing. And not one of them ever leveled off first time at 2,500 feet. It was just such a, an astounding airplane to fly and, and um, to realize you know, the, the power that this airplane had in the hands of this little lad who's still in my mind only seven years old and wanting to be a pilot. There's a fantastic picture of the Queen there. Uh, uh, where, where, where did she sit when she flew on Concorde? She, Her Majesty flew with Concorde uh, as often as she could. Um, all the members, senior members of the royal family flew with us. Um, and she would always sit in the front row on the left-hand side. Um, and so consequently, row one, seat A, became in the minds of many customers the most desirable place to sit because in their minds, knowing that she sat at the front on the left-hand side, at the front because it's the, the first road to disembark, on the left because the door's on the left. 
Um, that's the place, that's where the Queen sits, that's where I want to sit. So 1A became the place to sit. All the celebrities wanted to sit in 1A. In fact, wasn't the best seat in, in, on the airplane, well, the best seat on the airplane was mine, but wasn't the best passenger seat on the airplane. Best passenger seat was about row 15, because that's near the center of gravity. If you did get any turbulence, you'd get bounced around less there. But anyway, we didn't disavow them. Uh, but none of them realized that she actually didn't sit in 1A at all. What we did when it was a royal flight, we would take out several rows of seats and set up a special suite for Her Majesty, including uh, seats for her entourage and tables so she could do her work well. So she never actually sat in one of it's just in that location. Um, and she was a huge fan of the airplane, as of course was Prince Philip, um, who was a pilot as well. And she would use it whenever she could, but she was very mindful that it was perceived to be an expensive luxury. I can argue for a long time that it wasn't, but it was perceived to be. And so she didn't want the British public thinking that their monarch was wasting the taxpayers' money by flying on Bombo too often. Uh, but other members of the royal family did, and I can remember once um, flying back with Princess Margaret. And the way we do these things is that I was a co-pilot then. Um, if you were flying out, as we were on this occasion, to Bahrain, you go London to Bahrain one day, Bahrain to London the next. So the captain would fly one way, co-pilot would fly the other. And on this particular occasion, the captain, again, who remained nameless, but it was Hector McMullen, um, <laughs> decided he was going to fly the airplane out and I was going to fly the airplane back. So we did that. He flew out, stayed the night in Bahrain. I'm flying the airplane back the next day, so I had the briefing over the phone before we got to the airport. Get to the airport, I'm doing all the, all the fuel calculations and everything. And then the, the airport, British Airways airport manager, gets over to Hector and takes him to one side, whispers in his ear. Hector comes back and says, um, it's been a change of plans, Mike. Um, I'm going to fly the set to back. So I took it like a man and sulked. Um, and it transpired that um, Her Royal Highness Princess Margaret and indeed Lord Snowden were on board. And because it was a, now a royal flight, he felt that he should fly it and he couldn't trust it to this sprog. But, you know, I, as I soon came over that. Well, actually, it took me several years to get over that. But anyway, I soon, I soon got over that. But on the way back, I'm sulking, you know, gear up, if you like, anyway. Yeah. Um, but on the way into Heathrow, we were landing towards the east, and it was tradition that you would always say to um, special passengers, VIPs, particularly VIPs, but certainly to the royal family, would you care to join us on the flight uh, for takeoff or landing in the days when you could? And almost always, invariably, they would say, thank you very much indeed, but no thank you. But on this occasion, much to everyone's surprise, Princess Margaret said, yes, I'd love to, absolutely love to. So, ooh, wouldn't expect her to say that, so we're going to tidy everything up, so, you know, away goes the magazines that shouldn't be up there, and, uh, and, and the trays of tea, and uh, a royal highness comes up, strapped in, and we're landing towards the east, so we're coming off from this, right overhead here, pretty much, of the, the radio beacon across the road, um, and then off over Ascot, round, on into Heathrow. I thought, I tell you, it'd be a good idea to tell Her Royal Highness what's outside and point out some of the interesting features she can see. So, Your Royal Highness, if you look out the left-hand side of the aircraft, you'll be able to see Ascot Racecourse. Oh, that's really interesting. And if you look out the left-hand side, you'll be able to see Bracknell. Whoever wants to know where Bracknell is? <laughs> <laughs> Rand, coming over uh, uh, Windsor Castle, she looks out the window and says, Oh, I see my sister's home. 
Royal Stanley was flying, and Hector's flying it, and I'm still sulking. Um, anyway, so he comes in, and he got it wrong, and he really banged it in. He really, really banged it in. And of course, with a big smile, this little devil sitting on my shoulder, laughing his head off. And as we roll down the runway, the voice comes on the intercom from Princess Margaret saying, that's his knighthood gone. <laughs> Sticking, um, sticking with the, the royal theme, Mike, um, let's fast forward to, I know, another uh, highlight of your Flying Concorde, which was the 2002 Jubilee. Yeah. Um, wow, wasn't that fantastic? Seems like yesterday, but in fact, of course, it's 20 years ago. Um, the organisation for the Jubilee um, was really something special. This was going to be the the culmination of 50 years of reign. We didn't, of course, know that Her Majesty would uh, go on and reign brilliantly for the next 20 years. This was really something special. And ironically, um, one of the chaps that was organizing this um, was Gerard Asher. Um, he was the number two to Lord Sterling, who was the, the boss for all the organization for the Jubilee. And Gerald Asher is now the chairman of trustees here at Brooklyn, which is interesting, but still. Um, anyway, so the Jubilee, was being prepared, and they approached British Airways and said, would we like to fly in the Jubilee in formation with the Red Arrows? Well, of course, by this time in 2000, um, there had been a number of incidents with airlines around the world where airliners had got involved in air displays, either legitimately or sometimes ad hoc, and things had gone wrong. There'd been a couple of accidents. And the British Airways board had said in the late 80s, that's it, nobody from British Airways, no, air, no airline has ever fly in uh, air displays of any sort again. That's not the business we're in. You know, we're not in the business of doing this sort of stuff. We're not in the business of demonstrating to our customers how clever we are. We're in the business of getting them from A to B as safely as possible. So no, absolutely no flying displays. But when you get a request like this, it's kind of a bit different. And so um, I was tasked with the job of trying to persuade the board that we really should do this and it was going to be safe and that it was in the best interest of the company and all that stuff. And that process took way over six months. But eventually they signed off on it. And uh, the original idea was that um, the Red Arrows would lead us down the mall and we would sit behind them in formation. Um, I wasn't too keen on that idea for a number of reasons, but the least, uh, most important reason to me was I wanted to lead them. I uh, thought it would be much better if Congo was leading the Red Arrows than the Red Arrows leading Congo. The RAF wanted it the other way around. They wanted them, my Red Arrows leading us. So I, I said, well, unfortunately it doesn't quite work like that because this wing, this big delta wing, generates so many vortices. You know, it would be far, far safer if we lead them than they lead us. And so they said, oh, oh I hadn't thought about that. Oh, all right. It was total and utter nonsense, of course. But anyway. <laughs> so um, we had lots of practice, lots of meetings with the Red Arrows, and, and the day came. And... Uh, the whole formation was going to be um, made up of a number of elements, of which we were the last one. So Concord with the Red Arrows was the last element of all the formation. Uh, it was so important that we had a practice, which is very unusual. So we're the last element, and the, we're all holding over the uh, Southern North Sea. All the other elements are holding over the Southern North Sea, but further south. Uh, so they're in one lot, we're in another lot, and we have to join up. And the briefing is, follow the guy ahead. Because at the front of the formation, 
is a C-17 from the Air Force. He will do the navigation. He will get it perfectly right if the person behind him just follows him and the one behind him just follows him and so on. We'll all be in a nice line. Follow the one ahead. Okay, got that. Right. And we're the last ones, of course. So the, the red arrows are following me and I'm following the one ahead. Um, and we're coming in over the Suffolk coast near Southwold. Don't know if you know Southwold. There's a lighthouse in the middle of Southwold. It just so happens that lighthouse is situated exactly on the centre line of the Mall. If you draw a line down the Mall and keep it going, you will come to Southwold Lighthouse. So it's a great place to form up a formation. So on the on the practice day, we knew that the aircraft ahead of us, which was the brand new Eurofighter, which hadn't gone into service. Um, wasn't going to be there because they couldn't spare one. It was going to be a tornado. So they put a tornado there. We followed that. All worked out perfectly. In fact, we didn't go to Buckingham Palace. We went over RAF Marum. On the day of the actual fly past, um, several things happened. The first thing that happened was we're going around in our circle, and I get a phone call, and it says, Her Majesty's delayed for 30 minutes. Um, can you roll everything back? Yeah, sure, no problem. We've got lots of fuel. The Reds have got lots of fuel. All the other little RAF aircraft happened. They were scurrying up to the tank. It was hysterical. It was like bees to a net. So they come back down again. We all form up. And you've got to follow the aircraft ahead. And the aircraft ahead is the Eurofighter. And as we all, they're coming in from this side, and we're coming in, I'm like, where's the Eurofighter? Where is it? Can't see it. So I chatted to Jock Reed next to me. He said, what do you, can you see it? Door Scott, I can't see the bloody thing. Um, so we thought, well, what should we do? Well, I think we ought to close up. So just starting to close up, and then the Eurofighter appeared. Off to the right-hand side, escorted by two tornadoes, because he got lost. <laughs> the most advanced aircraft the Air Force has ever had, it got lost. They had a problem with the nav suite. So they popped up two tornadoes to escort him, put him in the right place. So we're now following the Eurofighter with two tornadoes. That's easy. You know, it makes a bigger target for us to follow. Great. But the tornadoes are not supposed to be in the fly path, so they've got to scurry off. So we get to the Hackney Marshes, and off they go, leaving the Eurofighter sitting there on its own. And he got lost again. <laughs> and, you know, he took to follow the guy in front, and he starts drifting off to the right. And it transpired, he got serious problems with his nav kit. But anyway, if you recall the photographs of the fly past, you'd never see the Eurofighter, because it was a mile and a half to the north of the Mall at the time. <laughs> you know, the most sophisticated anyway. So we're, we're coming in at 325 miles an hour, at 1,000 feet, 300 meters, uh, in close proximity to the Red Arrows. The nearest Red Arrows are the same distance from my Concorde as I am from the front row here, at uh, 325 miles an hour. Beneath us are a million and a half people. And you could see their faces. I've never seen a million and a half people. The roads were packed, the mall was packed, the parks were packed, the bridges were packed. And as we came over the Barbican Centre, because the Barbican's also on the centre line of the Mall, you could clearly see Her Majesty standing on the balcony with the rest of the royal family. She was wearing this flame orange outfit. And we flew down the Mall, and you would think, wouldn't you, that doing something like this, the pilot's mind would be fully fixated on keeping the right speed, the right heading, the right position in the other aircraft. No, we were just like everybody else in the crowd, just overwhelmed with it all. And looking and looking at Her Majesty and realizing how exciting and privileged we were to be doing this on that day. And then to, to pull up and climb away and turn, land into Heathrow, which was another spoof, by the way. Um, 
I told them all, when we, when we come down the mound, we get to Buckingham Palace, we've got to pull up very quickly and do a, pretty much a window so we can land straight into Heathrow, because, you know, they've closed Heathrow for this, and we've got to enable them to open Heathrow as quickly as possible. That was nonsense. I just wanted to be able to show off and pull the airplane up and climb away rapidly. Um, but we did that, and then subsequently, um, we were honoured to be invited to, by Her Majesty, to um, a reception at the palace uh, for the people that did that particular fire pass and got the opportunity to speak to Her Majesty for what felt like 10 minutes. It was probably about two minutes, but it felt like 10. Uh, I can't remember, in all honesty, what the conversation was, but I believe that's what everybody says. But I do remember the conversation with Prince Philip that took place. He was, oh, you're that bloody Concord pilot. <laughs> you come over our bloody home at Windsor. You're the one that keeps me awake. <laughs> Mike, I want to move the um, uh, conversation on a little bit because uh, I want to make sure that we get uh, lots of questions in at the end. Um, That's Nick's way of saying I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, 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 we're good. <laughs> but I want to um, move on to the accident um, and ask you what your role in, was in that. You had a substantial role in the accident investigation. Yeah. Um, if you'd asked me before that terrible tragedy in Paris, how I'd have felt if there'd been a Concorde accident. I'd probably said, it won't happen, it can't. The airplane's very safe. And if it does, it'll be terrible for aviation, terrible for the supersonic project, terrible for all the people that work on the airport. Well, it wasn't like that at all. Um, it was about the people. Chris and Amy and I, and Chris and Amy are here, um, were going on holidays the 25th of July, 2000. And we were going to cruise across the Atlantic on QE2, spend a few days in New York, and then fly back. And we were going down the M3 on our way to Southampton. Um, and it was farmer week, and I can remember looking out the window and seeing this A340 doing wonderful maneuvers. Something in the back of my mind just very strangely said to me, good grief, I hope he doesn't crash. don't know why I thought that, because it's very unusual. Anyway, down to Southampton, um, we're going up the gangplank. Our bags were in the cabin, and my phone and my pager went off at the same time. Ring British Airways, most urgent. So I did, and that was the first I learned of that terrible accident. And it, it wasn't about the airplane, about the people. And what's the decision now? You know, do we carry on with the holiday, or do I go back to Heathrow? So the bags come out of the cabin, and we get the car, and we're going back up to Heathrow to the emergency centre. We live near Heathrow, so I dropped Chris and Amy off and went in. Um, Amy's six at the time, really, really looking forward to this holiday. Um, and I disappeared into the emergency centre for you know, a long time. I had to come home then and face uh, uh, my wife and child, who not having the holiday they've been looking forward to. And I said to Amy, do you know where I've been? Do you know what's happened? And, and do you understand what I'm doing? And she said, yeah, I know where you've been and I know what's happened. And what you're doing is trying to make sure that it never happens again. And that really was my focus then for the next two years, because um, we were determined that this accident would never happen again. All accidents are a, a chain of events. Um, even the simplest accident, if you fall over in the shower tomorrow morning, it's um, an accident made of a chain, made of a chain of events. So you, 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 the water's running, you drop the soap, and you don't look where you put your foot. So if you take away any one of those three, if the water's not running, or you don't drop the soap, or you do look where you put your foot, you won't have the accident. All accidents are like that. So what we had to do was identify 
what the elements in the chain were and attack several elements in the chain to stop it happening again, which is exactly what we did. We attacked three elements in the chain uh, to introduce modification so that the airplane would be safe and proven to be safe and we could get back into the, into the sky. There was another overriding factors though, but it is such a sophisticated airplane and British Airways had so much expertise in operating the supersonic aircraft that it would be very easy to lose that expertise as time went on. Um, and so we decided at the beginning, if we get the airplane in the air inside three months, that's fine, we can cope with that. If it takes between three and six months, it's more difficult because I can't just have all my pilots sitting around doing nothing and my buddy Jim can't have his engineers sitting around doing nothing. So they've got to be redeployed onto other aircraft types. And then when we start flying again, they've got to be retrained. If it takes longer than six months, um, that becomes even more difficult because some of the people that do that won't want to come back to Concord. Or they're happy where they are, find a, a new lifestyle that suits them, so we've got to train new people. That's very difficult. And if it goes beyond 12 months, we've probably lost the expertise and the knowledge and the capability to ever bring the airplane back again. So the deadline, the real hard deadline, was to get the airplane back in the air within a year, which we just succeeded in doing. And we got the airplane back flying again. Um, and I kind of thought at that stage that, uh, on one hand, you feel very pleased, not triumphant, because you, you know the circumstances, you're very pleased to have achieved it. Uh, and the, the forecast for the airplane was very, very rosy at that stage. Um, Fast forward though, um, a few years later, it was clear that the French had decided that under their legal system, somebody had to be found responsible for this. So they had a criminal trial, the objective of which was to find who was to blame and to prosecute them. Uh, and they don't buy into this story, which is our story, they don't buy into this logic of all accidents being a chain of events. They had identified one element and said that's what caused the accident, in this case, a piece of metal that was on the runway. Whoever was responsible for that is responsible for the accident and will be prosecuted. And they were, and the uh, engineer that fitted the metal was uh, sentenced to 15 months in jail. I thought that was an absolute travesty and a disgrace. And so I got involved then in helping the defense team as an expert witness and in, in giving testimony. Uh, we, lost the, we lost the case. Um, the engineer who worked for Continental was found guilty. Um, but again, in a quirk of the uh, French system, rather like most other places, having been found guilty, he was entitled to appeal. But in the French system, the prosecutors can also appeal the not guilty verdicts. So once the, the guilty verdict can be appealed by the person who's been found guilty, the prosecutor can say, well, I don't think the not guilty verdict is sound, so we do it all again. So we did, and we won uh, the appeal, and he, the, all charges against him were dropped. Um, but that process in itself, from the day of the accident till the end of it, was another 10 years of my life. Very, very interesting, esoterically very rewarding, just to try and see justice done and make sure that the airplane that's such a big part of my life wasn't scarred forever with things that were said against it that just weren't true. <coughs> and that, uh, I think, is one of the stunning 
pieces of, of I mean, the, the, the way you put that together in the book, I think, is extraordinary, and it is, it does become a detective story, an investigator's sort of um, eye view of how you uncovered the causes for the crash. Um, but I want to fast forward again, Mike, to um, post-crash. I mean, I think I, I'd like to ask people to read the book, really, for that sort of detailed look at the crash itself. Um, but if I could just add one thing. Sure. You, you said at the first, Nick, about my motivations for writing the book. That was one of them, was to shine a light on some of the things that went on in the investigation and some of the things that went on in and around the accident that were not buried, it's not true, but they were set to one side. So there, was, there were a fair number of inappropriate, incorrect um, activities, actions that went on um, that definitely contributed to the accident, but they never really came to light. And there were one or two very interesting theories about what had actually happened on the day, and there were a whole raft of eyewitness testimonies that were just given no regard. Uh, and there is a whole story there about what actually happened on that day and how it wasn't, the story was never fully told. So it was part of the reason for doing the book was to tell that story and to shine some light on those issues. Sorry. And, and stunningly done, I might add. And um, because Concord herself was on trial, in effect. Yeah. Um, so, Mike, uh, tell us briefly, what have you been doing since leaving BA and um, retiring? Okay, so um, I'm in the generation where you had to retire at 55 uh, as a pilot, and um, <coughs> by that stage, I was an executive manager as well, and senior exec, and so I had the option to continue as a, on a pilot's contract. So th there were two systems. You could be on a pilot's contract with a supplement to manage, or on a management contract with a supplement to fly. It didn't make much difference financially, but it did mean that if you're on a pilot's contract, you had to retire at 55. So I was approaching that, and I thought, I don't really know what to do. I know what I'll do. I'll talk to the pension people. They'll know. So I rang up the pension people and, and posed the question. They said, I'm terribly sorry. I'm afraid we're not allowed to give you any advice. <laughs> we can, however, give you statistics. 98.2% of people in your position remain on a pilot's contract. But I can't give you any advice. There's <laughs> a bit of a clue there, isn't there, really? So that's what I did. So come, um, as I was approaching, as Concord was retired, um, my objective was to go and fly one of my other aircraft, because by that stage I was responsible for all of the short-haul and medium-haul airplanes at Heathrow, so the 737-757-767, the Airbus family, and Concord. Um, I was going to go and fly one of the Airbuses, and the boss rang up and said, Mike, well, I'd like you to look after Gatwick. I said, OK, Rod, is that as well as or instead of what I'm doing right now? It's as well as, and before you ask, there's no more money. <laughs> and so I never did get to fly the Airbus. I traded in my Concorde for a Ford Galaxy, going backwards and forwards, up and down the M25 and the M23, with three days a week in each office. It was huge fun, huge fun. Uh, but then retired, and one of the lovely things about my generation as a pilot, I knew the day I joined the company, when I'd retire, because I was going to stay with BA for my entire career. So I knew the day I joined the company, my retirement date was a particular date, and that was it. And if you 
and Chris, my wife, knew that. It's cabin crew as well with her retirement date. And if you haven't planned your life with 35 years advance notice of when your retirement date is, you're an idiot. So we had made plans. And you know, this seven-year-old boy who'd gone on to live all of his dreams and enjoy it, I, I was really motivated to put something back. I, it, it was, you know, can I make a difference? Can I make a change? I really want to put something back. I, I want to be involved in worthwhile causes. And so that's kind of a lot of what I've done. I'm, I'm vice chair of trustees here. I'm chair of governors in um, a, a local independent secondary school. Um, I've run with my wife, Chris, a couple of charities. I'm currently the uh, chairman of a property company in London. All sorts of things like that. Um, all voluntary work and the satisfaction from doing it is fantastic. Just walking around Brooklyn's is an example. The satisfaction of just the, the, the feeling of the place is great, but the people, the, the volunteers that are here that make it all work are fantastic and bring life into the place. And just to be involved in that is, is rewarding itself. And you know, it, it, we had a massive event here, um, which is why the 50s on the screen. Um, and we had a massive event here for the 50th anniversary of the first flight. So 1969, first flight, 2019, a big event here. It was wonderful, the enthusiasm put, and the effort and energy that everybody puts in. You've all seen some of it tonight, of all the, um, my colleagues here that have been helping you during the enthusiasm and the love, not just for Concord, but for the whole place. So that in itself is great. Um, of the other two pictures up there, the, the one uh, on the top left is the view from my window. Um, that was taken at 62,500 feet at 1,460 miles an hour with a, a two megapixel very early camera. I haven't touched that photograph at all. That's exactly how it looks out of the window of Concord at 62,500 feet. And then below is a picture of a beast called the Boom Overture, which is a, a next generation supersonic airliner that's been worked on for about the last 10 years by uh, Boom Supersonic in the States. Uh, who have been working closely with us here at Brooklands uh, to generate the next um, led, the next part of the story of supersonic flight. This beast will carry between 65 and 80 passengers. It'll travel at one, Mark 1.7. It'll be carbon neutral, use sustainable fuel, have a longer range than Concorde, made of composites. And the proposition is, would you fly on this aircraft uh, at Mach 1.7, twice the speed of a conventional aircraft, for the same price as you'd pay for a business class ticket in a conventional airplane. If the answer to that question is yes, then Boom's business model stands a good chance of working. And their proof of concept airplane is scheduled to fly this year. So they've been doing a lot of work. And if it looks a bit like Concord, um, it's funny, I went along to Farnborough a couple of years ago, and they showed me the latest iteration of design, and they had a model. And I picked the model up, and I said to the chief designer, this wing looks remarkably like a Concorde wing. He said, yep. I turned it over. These intakes look remarkably like a Concorde intakes. Yep. And this fin, it looks almost identical to a Concorde. He said, look. He said, you Brits got it right the first time. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's what I do. That's what keeps me awake and keeps me uh, smiling. Yeah. Well, brilliant, Mike. Thank you so much for sharing um, your story with us tonight. Um, did you want to roll the film? Is that something? Shall we roll the film? Shall we do that? Yeah. This is just a little bit of film that hopefully will capture what it was like flying Concorde and flying Concorde.
it's just a magnificent looking aeroplane and I just saw it just flying over our house and I thought wow and every time it went over I would run out and I would stand there until I couldn't see it anymore and that's how it went on. Enthusiasm never wanes. It's almost like every flight's your first flight. You know, you still get that cheesy grin on your face on takeoff, and it stays there till we touch down in New York. As soon as you get close to it, you're just in awe at the shape of it. It's just a beautiful machine to look at. There's sort of an area of expectancy before the aircraft sort of pushes back and starts its takeoff roll, and that is very exciting when they put the afterburners on and you get the push in the back. It's fabulous. Starts the bite. Push back into your seat. SB's building. Concentrating like mad. 60 knots. The noise takes over. 100 knots. That's it. All the calls come out from the engineer. The heart starts to pound a bit. Before you know it, you're airborne. Just holding her back, you can feel she just wants to go. It's just the most staggering experience. Everyone says it's going to be something you'll never forget for the rest of your life. You can always recognise it, and it, it looks, it's almost, I know it sounds silly, but it looks like a swan. You know, when swans fly, it looks like a swan with the shape of its neck. The outside is so elegant and causes gasps of amazement, even after all this time, every time, something, oh, there's Concorde, there's Concorde. You kind of think, oh, I wonder who might be on Concorde, maybe a famous film star who's just signed a contract in New York or something. I can't remember exactly how many times I flew Concorde, year 2000, but it must have been maybe 30 times, and that's, you know, 30 nights that you're not away from your kids. As I looked out of the window, I could see the shadow of night falling across the planet, and we flew into this line. And, you know, you don't get that anywhere other than in a spacecraft. The most wonderful thing about Concorde is that no matter how many times you fly and you think you become a jaded flyer, there still is that amazing, exciting sensation when you take off and when you're up in the air. You look out the window and you can't believe the speed at which you're traveling and, and the vista of the globe. It's really spectacular. She's just a beautiful bird in the sky, and that is just where she belongs. Thank you, Mike, um, and congratulations on a, a truly fantastic book. Um, we, we have got some time for a few questions. I will roll with, uh, uh, ro sorry, rove around with the, uh, the mic. Um, so if you've got a question, please stick up your hand and you can either shout or... Good. 
Yeah. Um, the question is, did any, anybody done any research on the effect on the human body of, of traveling this fast for so long? You, they have. It makes you remarkably handsome, very charming. <laughs> very modest. Uh, Einstein would tell us that actually there is an effect, that traveling that quickly does actually make you younger, very marginally younger. Uh, somebody told me that I, all those years I've been flying Concorde, I'm actually a, a second younger than I would otherwise have been. Um, but what, the, what I mentioned earlier about um, being up a 5,000 foot hill for only 3 hours 20 minutes as opposed to an 8,000 foot mountain for 8 hours, that really did make a difference. Um, you really did feel so much better when you got off in New York, how you flowed across on Concorde, than you would on 747. Um, and so the benefits were significant, uh, but not really because of the speed that you travel, apart from, of course, the handsome good looks. Yes, uh, in the middle back there. Uh, Concorde's obviously a very fast plane. Um, put into context, we have planes in the 70s, so, you know, um, military aircraft and 80s. I seem to have watched a video where a lightning pilot was talking about races with um, American fighters at the time, and yet, for some reason, smoking to be forced to clarify. Um, but you can the Concorde. Was Concorde faster than it? Um, can I compare Concorde to military aircraft of, of the time? <clears throat> well, not just at the time, but pretty much military aircraft right up until now. Um, in the early, middle, and indeed pretty much the latter days of Concorde, there was nothing that could do what we could do. Yes, there are military aircraft that can achieve twice the speed of sound, but they can't stay there for very long, whereas we could stay at twice the speed of sound for well over three hours. Um, and we were, I can tell you this now, I, I, I could have told you before, but I've had to shoot you there. But we used to do some secret squirrel stuff with the RAF, um, pretending to be a backfire bomber attacking the northeastern part of the UK from Russia, because uh, the backfire is a supersonic Soviet Union bomber. And the idea was we would fly in and the Air Force would scramble their jets to intercept us, fire off missiles and shoot us down. We did it about five times before they gave up because they couldn't catch us. Um, even the lightning, there was only one light, one particular specific lightning that ever succeeded in intercepting Concorde, and that was because it had been stripped out to do that very job. Um, it's not just about traveling twice the speed of sound, it's about getting up there and intercepting it. Um, and so the airplane itself was just literally unique in what it could do. Um, no other aircraft of its time can do. And there is, as far as I'm aware, no other aircraft still in the world that could do what we could do, which is to carry 100 people at twice the speed of sound across the Atlantic, three and a half, that, you know, three hours, 20 minutes, sitting in shirt sleeves with the best wine, the best service, and the best food in the air. So follow up on that one, the backfire simulation was Princess <laughs> <laughs> You might think that, I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, let's take uh, that one just here. Yeah, uh, that's you, yes. sir. Yeah. There's a Concorde that's um, still at Heathrow. Have you any intelligence on what's going to happen to that? It's a Concorde still at Heathrow. Have I any intelligence? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, Alpha Bravo is still at Heathrow. Um, 
After the accident, we came up with some modifications to get the airplane certificated to fly again. Um, and the modifications were applied to five of British Airways' seven airplanes. So two of them were never modified and consequently were not allowed to fly and didn't. Um, Alpha Alpha was one and Alpha Bravo, the one at Heathrow, was another. Um, we had originally intended in BA that we would have it mounted as a gate guardian outside Terminal 5 because Terminal 5 was being constructed to be the new home of British Airways. Uh, the airport authority were not keen on that. Um, we had a lot of discussions with them and it was fairly clear they were more than not keen, they were actually anti. But in the end, we succeeded in getting them to agree to do it, to put it on a pedestal outside Terminal 5. But they came back two weeks later and said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, we've built the roundabout now and the foundations aren't strong enough. Uh, so we said, oh, okay, um, well, uh, we, what we'd like to do then is display it within the airport. So I said, yeah, okay, you can do that. Um, but you'll have to paint out the British Airways livery. Why? Oh, well, you know, you're not the only airline that works here, you know. I mean, we've got 70% of your business, but we're not the only airline. Uh, and anyway, the cardboard shape equals British Airways. So what's the point of painting out the livery? By which stage they got silly and said, oh, okay, just do what you want to do. So we did, and we went and parked it outside the Virgin Hangar. <laughs> where it sat for the best part of two years before it being moved to its current position, um, uh, just north of the southern, eastern end of the southern runway. Um, it is a difficult thing for British Airways to handle now because uh, clearly they're not going to break it up. Um, it's inside the security perimeter, so there's no public access. Um, it could be moved, but to move it, A, there's the cost of dismantling it, moving it, reassembling it, but also there's now the massive cost of getting it out of the security um, perimeter, that so you'd have to build some sort of kind of like airlock thing. Uh, and also, you've got to find the right place for it because it mustn't compete with existing Concords. And in all honesty and understandably, it's not at the top of British Airways in trade right now. Um, they've got lots of other things they need to be doing. But it's, they are looking after it, they are making sure it's okay. Um, one of the problems when you have an airplane on static display like this and take the engines off is it gets out of balance. So to keep it balanced and correctly weighted, um, they put 25,000 copies of the British Airways High Life magazine on his balance, <laughs> which many people think was the greatest thing that the greatest use ever put. Um, they've, they've taken those out and put real ballast in now, but um, they're, they're still, British Airways are still looking for a, the right final home, but the right final home might be where it currently is. Yes, um, we're time for two more questions, I think, and then I want to get to the important business of book signing. So, yes, at the front. Thank you, Mike. Did the sonic boom stop Campbell's making love? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the sonic boom is interesting. It's not a, it's not a sound. Um, the, the airplane travels so quickly it compresses the air and the air, pressure of the air increases by about two pounds per square inch and it's like the uh, bow wave of a boat um, and it's, it's three-dimensional, it's conical so this bow wave forms at the front of the airplane and another one forms at the back 
and those bow waves and tail waves travel with the airplane at the same speed as the airplane. So that is the, the shock wave. And if you are an observer on the ground and this goes over you, your ear senses two pounds per square inch pressure change instantaneously, which you perceive as a bang. Um, the bang is like distant thunder. Uh, originally, the manufacturers hoped that uh, authorities around the world would um, tolerate that and allow us to fly supersonically over land, but it became fairly clear fairly early that wasn't going to happen. Um, and so we were quite rightly so. We're limited to supersonic flight over water only, apart from one or two places in the world that were very, very sparsely populated. So the central part of Australia, the northern part of Canada, parts of the Middle East. Um, in fact, our route down to Bahrain in the early days, we were flying supersonically over land for quite a while, a while before the uh, Saudi Arabians said, said literally, well, if you don't fly supersonically over Europe, why should you fly supersonically over our country? And there's some logic in that, I guess. So we had to move the route to fly supersonically over Egypt. And that was interesting because the Egyptians had this perception that you only generated a sonic boom when you actually went through the sound barrier, accelerating or decelerated back through the sound barrier. They thought that was the only time the boom was generated. So they gave us permission to fly over their land as long as we didn't go through the sound barrier, either accelerating or decelerating. The fact that we were going at Mach 2 over there, that was fine, you know, didn't mind about that. So a few camels did get boomed. So they, I'm sure they were very happy camels. <laughs> One more question. Yes, sir, uh, right. On the right hand side there. You sort of briefly uh, sort of touched on at the end. I was uh, interested in hearing your opinion on the commercial viability of the modern supersonic project, specifically from your perspective of coming from not only just a fan of aviation in general, but also experiencing the economic problems that the project or the Concorde project faced um, at the end of its career. So I just sort of wanted to explore that. Gosh. Um, I could talk for hours on that subject alone, but the question was basically about the commercial viability of the next generation of su supersonic aircraft against the commercial um, environment that Concorde operated in, I guess that's the question. Uh, most people think Concorde lost money from British Airways, it didn't. It made about 500 million pounds real bottom line profit in the time that it was flying with us. Um, it was profitable throughout its entire career apart from the two, around the two Gulf Wars, um, and uh, the run-up towards the dis retirement decision. Uh, once the retirement decision had been made, it was profitable. That was when 500 million pounds was a lot of money, and that's real bottom line profit. 500 million pounds could buy you more than two footballers, so it was a, it was a, a lot of money, and there were times when the seven aircraft in British Airways Concorde fleet were generating 45% of British Airways profits. So British Airways definitely benefited from Concorde, what it didn't do, of course, was pay back the um, research and development costs, which you and I, as British taxpayers, pay for. But that research and development cost did generate 50,000 plus jobs and did generate all sorts of things for aviation and other forms of transport that are still um, going around today. Carbon fiber brakes, fly-by-wire, um, throttle-by-wire, were all originally done on Concorde. So there's some logic behind that. And of course, Concorde was a very political aeroplane. Modern generation supersonics have faced challenges, um, and clearly they have to meet all the environmental regulations that are enforced when they come into service, and any projected. They have to uh, get over, as do other forms of aviation, some misapprehensions amongst the general public about how much carbon 
the aviation industry does actually use, which isn't very much at all, but that's another issue. Um, and it's got to do all the things that Boom Overture are trying to do, sustainable fuel, zero carbon. The biggest challenge is bringing all these pieces together. Um, I'm optimistic, I'm, I'm very optimistic that there will be another supersonic airline. Absolutely, my grass is always half full. Amy, our daughter, who's a commercial pilot, will hopefully one day have the opportunity to fly it. Um, I think the Boom Overture, I know it's the one that's got closest to being successful. It's still got some challenges, not least the actual engine that they're going to use, because about two months ago, Rolls-Royce pulled out of their relationship with Boom, so Boom are working to find another engine provider. But if there's going to be one in the near future, I think it'll be the Boom Overture. If that's not successful, there will be a few more years, but it will happen. Thank you so much again. That's um, on the top of the hour, finishing. Fantastic. Well done. Uh, there are books to uh, buy and for Mike to sign at the back. Um, so uh, please uh, make your way back there after this. Mike will also be available for questions as well to, uh, uh, to finish this all off. But thank you so much you. for coming this evening. Um, it's been a fabulous evening. Thank you again, Mike. Thank you.